Well, good morning, everybody. Title of today's message is The 4,000 Years War. We're going to start off in Genesis chapter 16, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. If you were here last week, we started off with the question, are we living in the end times? And to answer that question, we looked at how the people and the culture would behave and act during the time of the end times. We looked at Romans chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 3, as well as several other verses in the Bible to see if that matches up to what we are seeing today. Well, this morning, we're going to look back in time so we can understand the history of what is going on in Israel today. I have a feeling that many of you may not understand or believe or realize that this fight between the Jewish people and the Arabs around them is not a recent development. You see, all this did not start in 1948 with the United Nations granting the land of Palestine, as it was called then, to those of Jewish descent after the Holocaust. The land given to Israel wasn't even really that large of a section of land. It was a skinny little parcel that hugged the Mediterranean Sea and went over to the mountains to the east. And it really wasn't that bad. It was maybe about, or that big, I should say. It was about maybe one quarter to one third of what Israel had been in Bible times. Then in 1967, the Six-Day War happens. Six-Day War was an alliance of Arab nations, primarily Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and Lebanon, who were pretty much financially backed by most other Arab states like Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Pakistan. They all attacked at the same time and attempted to wipe out Israel. This alliance of Arab nations was crushed by the Israeli military, and in the ensuing battle, Israel took a lot of land and created a border that had not existed since the time of King David. Right after the 1967 war, there was an effort to gain peace by giving land. So they gave back some of the land that they had fought for during the Six-Day War and gave it back to some of the prospective countries. Most notably, they gave the entire Sinai Peninsula that they won in battle back to Egypt but they kept the, the land around where today Gaza is. It has also kept what is known as the West Bank, which is an area to the west side of the Jordan River, about halfway up the mountains. The United Nations still considers Gaza and the West Bank of the Jordan River to be disputed territory. That's the wars that have happened in many of our lifetimes. But this conflict actually goes much, much farther back in history. It goes back beyond 1948 when Israel was founded. It goes back beyond the Crusades of the Middle Ages. It even goes back before Jesus walked on this earth. In fact, to discover the origins of this conflict, we have to go all the way back to Genesis and the father of our faith, Abraham, to see where all this started. So let's talk a little about Abraham. Abraham was called by God, him and his father were called by God to travel to Canaan, which is today modern Israel. Abraham's father died, and God starts speaking directly to Abraham. And in Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. 
Let's talk just for a moment about that word covenant because it's not a word that you hear very often in today's um, language. A covenant is a formal contractual promise between two people. And there are two basic kind of covenants in the Bible, a conditional and an unconditional. A conditional covenant requires actions from both parties entering into this promise or contract. In today's terms, this would be like a mortgage on a home. The borrower of the money promises to give you the money, and you promise to pay it back with interest. Both parties have to do something for this contract to be successful. However, an unconditional covenant is when a person is so much greater than the other party entering into the agreement that they're going to promise to do something for the person um, that they could never even um, come close to matching. This is also called a royal grant covenant, where a king gives a reward to a faithful subject for a duty or a service that they have done for the king. That covenant is irrevocable because it's based on the word and the promise of the king himself. In this covenant that God is making with Abraham, this is an unconditional covenant. God promises to bless him and to give him so many descendants that they will not be able to be numbered. And in essence, this covenant was a reward. It was based on Abraham believing the word of God to him. As Genesis 15 verse 6 says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. God was so impressed by Abraham's faith that he gave him this promise. And this promise is that Abraham and all of his descendants would be so innumerable that no one could ever be able to count them like the stars in the sky. Well, Abraham, you know, being human, he's questioning God. Well, well God, how are you going to do this? I don't, I don't know if you have all the facts here, God. I mean, my wife, Sarah, is barren. She's never been able to have children. And actually now, we're both well past childbearing years. Abraham's 75 when this is going on, and, and Sarah's 65. But God assured Abraham that this would come to pass, and Abraham believed God. However, time started going by. A year went by, and still no child. Then another year went by. No child yet. Five years go by. Still no child. Then 10 years goes by. Now, I imagine they're starting to sweat a little bit. I mean, they, they probably made this nursery and a cradle and everything else with a new baby to go in, and they're staring at it every day, hoping that today is going to be the day that they discover that Sarah is pregnant. But still, absolutely nothing. As I said, Abraham's now 85 years old. Sarah's 75 years old. And even in Bible times, that's well past childbearing years. As they watch the dust begin to accumulate on, a, on the cradle, they come up with an idea, maybe we have to help out God a little bit here. Maybe there's something we need to do. There is so many times in life where those thoughts are the beginning of disaster. And we're going to see that here today. Because this is the beginning of the conflict that we are witnessing over in Israel today. We're going to read Genesis 16, verses 1 through 4. 
Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. And she said to Abraham, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through there. Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. Let's go to prayer just for a moment. Father God, we're going to be talking about some very difficult things, some very politically incorrect things, but they are truth. We can't fix a problem until we, or we can't find a solution to a problem until we identify what caused it. And that's the heart of what I want to do today. We're going all the way back thousands of years to see the genesis of this problem, to see where it started. I ask, Father, that you just open our hearts and minds to receive the word of God through your Holy Spirit today. And bless the hearer and bless me as I bring it. Father God, I ask this in your name. Amen. So Abraham takes Hagar to be his second wife, and Hagar gets pregnant. Unfortunately, Sarah has a fit of jealousy and begins to mistreat Hagar so bad that Hagar runs away. Remember, she's a slave. However, we have to remember that she's pregnant with Abraham's son. This son is an heir to the covenant that God has sworn to Abraham. There wasn't anything specific, like this child has to come through Sarah. He is, God gave it to Abraham and his descendants, all of them. So this son is an heir to that covenant. Well, Hagar, as she is running away, she's met by the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord reminds her of this promise. In Genesis 6, verse 11, the angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. Now, I want you to watch this description of Ishmael in the word of God today. Continuing in Genesis, it says, He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all of his brothers. The angel of the Lord further instructs Hagar to return to Abram's, Abraham's house so that she will be safe and cared for until Ishmael becomes a young man. So Hagar returns to Abraham's house and Ishmael is born. Now fast forward 15 years. It's been a total of 25 years after God made his original promise to Abraham that he would have a son. But now Sarah gets pregnant at 90 years old and Isaac is born. What an incredible miracle God has done here. Soon after, the, after Isaac is born, Ishmael is heard mocking. And in the original languages, it, it makes it sound like he was possibly threatening the new child Isaac. So Sarah, again, has a fit and tells Abraham, Abraham, you got to get rid of these people. 
I'm not going to endanger my son. You need to send them away. So he does so. so. And Ishmael became the father of 12 sons. Those 12 sons became the Arab people. One of the Arab tribes would be what we talk about today and call the Palestinians, who, along with many other Arab fighters, make up the organization called Hamas. Now, I want to make this point. This fight between the Jews and the Arabs began because Abraham and Sarah tried to help God fulfill his promise. So they got the son of the flesh. Now, when you look in the Bible and it talks about the flesh, it's always in the negative. It's always talking about human effort apart from God. So them trying to bring about God's promise in their way did not yield a spiritual or good result. It yield, yielded Ishmael, which not only the Jews, but much of the world has been at war with since this time in the Bible. However, when they got the son of the promise, that son didn't come through human effort. That son came through faith in God. And those two sons have been fighting ever since then. There's also a second part to this. And it was seen in Isaac's sons. Isaac grows, gets a wife, and starts having children. Um, he had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau was exactly like his uncle Ishmael. He was the firstborn and should have been the inheritor of everything that Isaac had. But if you remember the biblical narrative, Esau, again, like his uncle Ishmael, he's a wild man. He's a man that has no patience and probably less wisdom. So much so that he sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. That birthright means that he would get a double portion of whatever inheritance Isaac left behind when he died. But he sold it for a bowl of stew because he was hungry. That just shows you what kind of impulsive and immature person Esau was. Jacob, unfortunately, <laughs> but he took advantage of that and tricked his father for the blessing of the firstborn by imitating Esau and then stealing that blessing. And more drama came because of that. Now, if you look in history, Esau's descendants included now those who are living in Lebanon, Iraq, and Syria. Now, if the members of the other terrorist organization causing problems in Israel right now Hezbollah are from those areas, they could very well be descendants of Esau. Something very interesting. Again, happening roughly 4,000 years ago. So that's the history about what's happening. Let's talk about what's happening today because I want us to have that historical context so you can correctly interpret what is being talked about on TV and the news. And I want to point out a couple of things that I found very interesting as I was studying for this message this week. That word Hamas that is being thrown around as a title of the, of the Palestinian um, freedom movement, if you will, it's not a word, but it's an, actually an acronym. In Arabic, it stands for Islamic Resistance Movement. 
That's, that's what it means if you're going to translate it from the Arabic. There is a very similar sounding word in Arabic that means zeal or those who are zealous. There's an irony, though, of them choosing that name for themselves because there is a Hebrew word, chamas, which is a word in Hebrew that means brutal, unjustified, evil, and wicked violence. Isn't that interesting? After a couple of weeks of seeing the utter evil atrocities that Hamas has done to Israel, we have now seen firsthand and been witnesses of what that word means. We also see this word repeated throughout the Old Testament, and it's always used to describe horrific acts of violence, rape, mutilation, and the slaughter of innocents. I don't actually think this is a coincidence. I think the forces of darkness move the leaders of the terrorist organization called Hamas to choose that name knowing what it meant in Hebrew because it was a, a, a description about what they were all about. Now, I know that we have a lot of people protesting for Hamas. They're saying, well, this is just war and bad things happen in war. We have to realize that. And if you looked upon the utter atrocities that Hamas is committing right now, and they, if they believe that garbage, there is something wrong with them. Their soul, their minds are something severely spiritually damaged in them if they could actually say that with a straight face. And I know they're coming under the influence of, of bad actors, um, college professors who are who are educated way beyond their ability, liberal people who, for whatever reason, are anti-Semitic and hate the Jews and want to try to put a good face on Hamas. Whatever it is, there is just something wrong with you. You see, in war, there's a difference between killing and murder. Neither one is good, but there's a huge difference between the two acts. There's a difference between executing your duties as a soldier and ending the enemy's life. That is killing. God doesn't like war. I know he had to command it a lot of times. He has to work with what, what he has. And sometimes war is that. There's a difference between that, though, and doing what Hamas is doing. They are doing Hamas. Wicked, evil acts of horrific violence. They are raping. They are killing children. They're just doing so many horrific acts that I, I don't even want to describe them here. But they are horrible. This is pure evil. How evil is it? Well, let me show you how evil this is and exactly how God views it. The first place that the Hebrew word Hamas is used is in Genesis 6, verse 11. This is going back to Noah. This is a description of how the earth was right before God sent the flood. In, the, in Genesis 6, verse 11, it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. That word violence there is the word Hamas. 
God saw how corrupt the earth become, for all the people of the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with Hamas because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. The first time humanity went down and went into this kind of evil, God pushed the reset button on the whole planet. Killed everything except for the animals on the ark and eight human beings. And there were potentially millions of people on the earth at that point. Everyone, everyone went. This is what God thinks about what is happening in Israel today. It should make any sane, moral person recoil in horror and in fear and trembling about the wrath of God that could come. And as bad as all this is for the Middle East, we shouldn't just concentrate on the world that we are seeing because all of this is part of a great spiritual battle that predates even Abraham. We'll get to that in a minute. But I want to point out something about Hamas and Hezbollah and, and a lot of the terrorists. The Hamas terrorists are all members of the Islamic faith. So they're called Muslims, specifically the Sunni Muslims. Now, most people know that Christianity has kind of two primary divisions, if you will. It has Catholics and it has Protestants. Islam has something very similar. They have Sunni Muslims and they have Shia, also called Shiite Muslims. The Sunni Muslims are the largest of the two and the Shiites mostly live in Iran. And both both of them believe about 98% of the same thing. It just depends which teacher and which emphasis they put on their faith is, is really the only difference. And we should also remember this about Islam. Islam is a proscriptive religion, meaning it wants to rule every part of your life. Everything is proscribed for you. It wants to run the day-to-day -day decisions. It will be the primary government of the people, and they live by the sword, do it or else. They describe exactly the way you should pray, what you should pray, when you should pray, exactly how to exercise your faith. Everything is laid out for them. It's very important for us to understand that. Everything is laid out, including the idea of jihad. Jihad means holy war. You see, to a Muslim, there's no sure way to get to heaven. Like we have the faith and assurance of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, paying for our sins and through believing in him, we have eternal life as Christians. They don't believe that at all. They have no sure way to get into heaven. In their faith, they call it inshallah, which means whatever Allah, the, which, the, their name for God, whatever his will is, will be. So they could be a faithful Muslim their entire life, never break a single rule, and still go to hell. It just depends on what arbitrary whim Allah has that day for them. Except for one thing. They have assurance of salvation if they participate and die in jihad or a holy war. If they die for their faith, they believe that they become VIPs in heaven, they get 72 virgins to take as their wives, and they live in paradise 
under Allah's favor forever. That's what they believe. So by the fundamentalist belief in Islam, which is the predominant belief in the Middle East that many of the Sunni Muslims follow, the only sure way to get to heaven is to commit Hamas. Now, are their actions making a little bit more sense to us as why they are able and wanting to do what they are doing? I just bring that to you to give you a little bit of perspective about the why. I'm not excusing it. It's horrible. And they should be stopped. But this is, this is their mindset and how they believe. Now, as much as we've been focusing on the physical and the historical, we have to remember that whatever is happening in the seen world starts in the unseen or the spiritual. Ephesians 6.12 reminds us, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the dark powers of this evil world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Islam and Hamas is a spirit. It's a dark and incredibly evil spiritual force within hell's legions. Now, the Bible really doesn't get into how Satan governs hell or organizes his armies and forces. I'm assuming since he copies everything God has done, that he has copied that kind of command structure, if you will, in heaven. Therefore, I believe Hamas and Islam, they're both some type of arch demon, chief lieutenant, something like that in in hell, and it enters into people and compels them to commit these horrible acts. And that Hamas spirit is what is being unleashed on the earth today. We see it in the Middle East, but it has been going on for years in sub-Saharan Africa among the Muslims there, waging jihad on Christians and many of the native tribes there. We don't hear about that in Africa because for a large part, America and the West ignores what's going on in Africa, but it's been constantly happening, at least in my lifetime. And that spirit has been unleashed on full within its full measure upon the earth today. And you might say, well, why now? What, what makes today so special that, that Satan's trying to, trying to do this now? Because I believe we're in the end times. And the book of Revelation gives us a clue. In Revelation 12, verse 12, it says, Woe to the earth and sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows his time is short. Listen, with the exception of Jesus Christ himself, the devil knows that Bible better than any human who has ever lived. Satan can see the signs that the end is coming. Therefore, he's going to unleash his full fury and evil upon the world. Satan is going to infect and affect as many people as he can to drag them down to hell with him. And he's using Hamas, Hezbollah, and all these terrorist organizations to do that to Israel. But really, it's his plan for all of humanity. Now, I'm going to end today by showing you a video. For those listening online, I'll put a link to the video. It'll link you to YouTube. You can watch the video there. I'll put it in the in the description or make a comment 
um, after I post this to the internet, so you can watch it there. It was actually my plan to talk about the kingdom of darkness, Satan and Deem and Satan and demons during the month of October, but then the war in Israel um, started, so I decided to switch gears and talk about that instead. The video that you're going to watch is going to teach us a little bit about the motivations of demons. It's about five minutes long. It's from a movie called Nefarious. And just so you understand what's going on, if you've never seen it, it's a Christianese movie. The central plot of it is an atheist psychiatrist is meeting with an inmate on death row. Now, psychiatrists have to certify whoever's on death row to be sane because it would be cruel and unusual punishment to execute an insane person by our laws. So they have to declare them sane. But this prisoner has been acting strangely, so the warden wants him to check him out and make sure that he's actually okay, because now this man's claiming to be a demon that is possessing that man who did the crimes. So we're going to watch that little video clip and see the demon explain their origin and their hatred for humanity. That video clip is probably the best synopsis that I have ever heard about the kingdom of God and their mission. You know, we spent a large part of this morning talking about the history of the conflict in Israel. But really, it started right here with what was described in that video. We're witnessing the battle of the ages being played out through the people here on earth. And the takeaway is this. All this is part of the spiritual conflict that we don't see, but it really is a spiritual battle being played out through people. I want to remind you of that. Because when you're tempted to hate on other people, when you're tempted to say, why don't we just nuke the Middle East, turn it into a parking lot, send in the Marines to paint the lines, I mean, just get rid of all these people, remember. As deceived by Satan as these people are, as evil as the acts as they might be doing, they deserve to hear about the saving news of Jesus, just like you and me. If you are a Christian living to this, you, they do, you deserve as much hell as they do. You have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But because of his great mercy for us, God gave us Jesus Christ as payment for our sins, that whoever would believe in him and follow him and become his disciple will have everlasting life. They deserve that same chance. So I would encourage you, pray, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the, the, the safety of Israel. But also, pray for the salvation of the Muslims. Remember, they exist under the covenant of Abraham also, that he would multiply them. Remember to pray. Jesus even told us, pray for our enemies. Pray for those who, who use violence against you and, and violently persecute you. Pray for them so that you may be sons of the Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, I know this is a hard word. I know that 
There are so many things in our life that want to inflame our passion, to hate our fellow man because they because they are lost. They are away from the, the one true God. They are following a false religion and doing horrific acts. And Father, I I understand my heart is enraged at times when I see the news and what they've done. I I I get it. But Father, you have called us to to live according to your kingdom. So, Father God, I ask, Lord, that you just touch our hearts and minds. Give us spiritual eyes to see. Just as Elisha prayed for his servant, that, that the servant's eyes would be open to see the spiritual battle happening around them. Give us those same kind of eyes, Father, to see first the spiritual before we react to the physical. Help us to exist as ambassadors of the kingdom of God. Help us to, to mold our lives into the concept that we exist to shine the light of Jesus into this world. Help us to do that, Father. Help us to trust in you during this time. And Lord Jesus, we say, Maranatha, come, come quickly, Lord. We desperately need you. Father God, I just pray your blessing upon everyone listening. I ask, Lord, that you keep them safe in the center of your will. Mold them and shape them into vessels of honor that can be used by you in these last days. And Father, just keep them safe and in your shalom, your peace. Father, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.